And now our uh, New Testament lesson, which is based on Romans 1.19. Hear now the perfect, infallible word of God. It is without error on, on no points at all. For what can be seen about, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. And that concludes the reading of God's holy word this morning. Let's pray that God would bless and anoint and grow us through the preaching of his holy word. God, we're, we're thankful uh, for this day, a, a beautiful day where we get to worship and glorify you. God, we are thankful for really sparing the life of Sydney and Jake, um, just very scary circumstances there. God, we thank you for your, your love and your grace and your mercy in those situations. God, um, we just ask for continued healing and restoration, both for Sydney and Jake, Lord. Um, and God, if someone's here that hasn't accepted you, trusted in you as your Lord and Savior, Lord, I pray that the truth of your word and the obviousness of your existence and the person and work of Jesus Christ would, would, would convict them of their sins. Let them know that you will forgive them of all of their sins if they just reach out in faith and trust you, Lord Jesus. Please, we ask for your grace to fill this room. We ask for your Holy Spirit to work through the preaching of your word, to bring people from a state of eternal death into eternal life to know you, Lord Jesus. So Lord, make yourself known to the preaching of your word. Bring grace to people who need grace, who are hurt and broken down and beaten down by this world. Lord, may your grace and mercy fill their hearts and may they receive you forever and ever. And it's in Christ's precious name we ask all these things. Amen. So uh, last week we saw pretty good proof for the beginning uh, for the existence of God from the beginning of the universe, from the design in the universe, from the beauty in the universe, from the knowledge we have about the universe. And today, um, uh, we're gonna be looking at more proofs for God. Um, to some of you, that's great news. To some of you, you're like, I'm not so sure about this. Why are we going over arguments for God's existence at a church? Um, and we are because of, that's what their text is about. It's about something that our culture feels and says is implausible, but that, that the Bible teaches is very obvious and plausible, which is God's existence. And here in Romans 119, we get a clear statement from Paul where he says, for what can be known about God is plain to them obvious, just right in front of your face, the existence of God, because God has shown it to them and God has shown it to us in our experience, seeing beautiful mountains, in our reasoning. God has shown himself. He's put his imprint everywhere. And we're going over this clear evidence for the existence of God because as I have said, People have, have claimed this. Christians have claimed this. I've gone to graduate school and talked to Christians who think this. They say that God's existence is hidden. Um, but if you read here, what Paul says, it is not hidden. It's obvious. It's plain. It's clear. And um, I have often heard, like, this is people say all sorts of things why it's hidden. They might say not to violate your free will or whatever it is. But another thing I've heard that's so common and it's, and it's kind of infected the Christian church in many ways is that, well, God's existence has to be hidden and obscure and weird because then it wouldn't require faith. Sure, you guys have heard that, you know, like, oh, yeah, you know, well, if it was obvious and we wouldn't have faith, and so we must kind of protect this bizarre definition of faith, which, by the way, does not come from the Bible at all, the definition of faith, that faith is a, a blind leap into the dark, you know, it's believing even though there's evidence against it and all this kind of thing. As Mark Twain once kind of sarcastically put it, faith is believing what you know ain't so. 
Um, and so all this evidence is against you, but you still believe. If that's what the Bible means by faith, then let me tell you, the apostles didn't have faith by that definition because Peter, Paul, John, they saw the risen Lord. They saw Jesus rise from the dead. They knew that death had been defeated. So, I mean, they had proof. They saw it. They touched Jesus's hands and his legs. They knew that he was a physical resurrected Lord and they knew that they would have newness of life. They, they didn't have blind faith. The apostles didn't have that. They saw Jesus. And so what the Bible means by faith is just the word trust. It's, that's what it's equivalent to in our English language. So it's trusting in Jesus to save us of all of our sins, not trusting in myself and my merits, but only trusting in Christ and his sacrifice and merits for me. Um, and so this, this definition of faith that the Bible teaches, what the Greek word faith pistis means, is not in any way you know, in tension with God's existence being obvious and abundantly clear to all people. And so we're going to continue to look at this controversial claim um, in, in obedience to 1 Peter 3.15, which says that we as Christians are to give a reason for the hope that's in us. That's a commandment to us as Christians. We are to give reasons for what we believe, what we hold so dearly in Jesus Christ. And um, you know, it's, it's affected the church that we've not been doing this because as I said, three out of four kids in a youth group are gonna leave the faith in college. So this is something that we're very focused on here at CCC is not only knowing what you believe, but why you believe it so that we can be ambassadors of Christ and spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. So um, I just wanna point this out though, that next Sunday, we're gonna be looking at the problem of evil and suffering and how that's compatible with a good and loving God. Because many people will say that this reason emotionally just makes God's existence unclear and ambiguous. So we'll be tackling that whole whole uh, issue next Sunday for the kind of the grand finale of our, of our series. But now we're gonna be looking at, at, at points that are gonna be more uh, striking deeper to the heart or, or striking it deeper to uh, close to home, as they would say. Um, we're gonna be looking at purpose, meaning, and morality. And if there's no purpose in your life, then it's everything you're doing in life like doesn't make sense. So this is like, this is really at the heart of who we are as people. Like, I mean, do we have an ultimate purpose? Are there moral absolutes? What's going on here? And uh, this, this affects every decision that we make. This affects our lives in a deep way, morality, meaning, and purpose to everything that we think and do, every decision we make. And um, I bring this up because uh, people who are atheists, people who deny the existence of God, have had trouble making sense out of morality, meaning, and purpose. This is what Richard Dawkins, the famous atheist, I wanna know how famous he is. Who's heard of Richard Dawkins, out of curiosity? Yeah, so a good number of hands, right? So he's kind of like a celebrity because I've brought up celebrities here at church and I'd see like one hand. So Richard Dawkins is kind of getting the rounds. He's kind of a popular guy. So, but this is what he says. In a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are gonna get hurt. Other people are gonna get lucky and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom. No design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. Wow, that's depressing. <laughs> wow, it's like, wow, go to sleep on that, you know, it makes you feel so good. <laughs> Not. Um, 
But you know, it, it, it seems clear to us, it's so obvious to us that there are things that are just horrifically evil. There are things that are truly good and there does seem to be a purpose in life. There is a, just a clarity, right, to the purpose of life. And the big point I'm gonna make, if you just zone out and you're, you know, you're going into a, a donut coma and you don't get anything else I say, the structure of what I'm gonna be proving today is that it's obvious that meaning, purpose, and morality are clear to us and, it's, and that those things don't make sense unless you have a God. So if those things are obvious and they entail or suggest that God exists, then God's existence is pretty obvious. Um, so the first thing I want to do is look at the, the proof for God for morality. Now, this, this argument for morality, people have misunderstood it um, really badly. Um, this is not saying that if you believe in God, you're gonna, if you, or if you say you believe in God, you're going to be a good person. People that say that they don't believe in God are bad people. Not what this is saying at all. I mean, I know people who claim to be Christian that, let's just say, a lot of people would not say they're very good, right? And I know people who are atheists. I have friends who are atheists who are very kind, generous, decent people. Um, so this is not saying that anything to do with the lives of atheists or Christians, this is, that's not this point, okay? This only is saying that if one is an atheist, whether they're good people or bad people, whatever it is, they just have no way to explain morality being factual or objective when you deny the existence of God. Now, um, I, happen to, uh, I happen to like a pina colada flavor at ice cream places. Any chance I go to an ice cream place and they happen to have pina colada, I am first in line for that. I like it, right? Now, not everybody likes pina colada. Some people like you know, chocolate stuff that gives me a headache and all this kind of thing. You know? And so, but my choice of ice cream is not a fact, right? Like it's not like people should factually um, you know, say that pina colada is the best flavor. No, I mean, I wish that would be the case, but it's not the case. It's a matter of preference, right? It is a matter of preference that we like one ice cream flavor over another. There's no factual basis in there. Well, morality is, is in no way like that, right? Objective and factual means it is true, whether you recognize it or not, whether you believe it or not. Um, um, you may not like certain things that are factually true, like the fact that the Utah Jazz has never won an NBA championship. I don't know if you know that. Me and my dad, we were talking to my dad's here. We were talking about how great the Lakers are. But, you know, I'm from L.A., so or L.A. area, and so, you know, we like the Lakers out there. But, you know, they've won many, but, you know, the Utah Jazz hasn't. You know, I mean... You know, if you're a first-time visitor, you're like, I'm never going back to this church. Um, <laughs> bagging on the jazz. But I'm saying, you know, it is factually true that the Utah Jazz has never won a single one, right? Um, now, again, we're talking about the NBA championship here. That's true whether you like it or not. You probably don't like it because you're in Utah, okay? That's true whether you feel like it. It's a fact whether you recognize it or not, whether you acknowledge it or not. And so I'm saying the point here is that morality is a fact, whether you like it or not, whether you feel like it exists. And um, if atheism is true, if God does not exist, all that exists is this physical universe filled with physical bits of matter, nothing more, nothing less. That's all it is. Um, so where do you fit this idea of objective or factual morality and that, that there are things truly right or wrong? And so this is what the, what the proof goes. If you can, I don't know if they have it in the AV team, but I, I have like a step-by-step -step proof that's, if you want to know, if you're a nerd, it's logically valid and sound. I'm sure you, you know. <laughs> um, but the first one is, if God does not exist, then moral facts do not exist. Moral facts do exist. Conclusion, therefore God exists. So 
Typically, atheist people who deny the existence of God, which is what an atheist is, deny this in two ways. The first one, they say, well, I know how to explain morality. It's just made up. Like everybody agrees on these rules and there's a made up rules that we all agree on and there you go. That's, that's why we get morality. But you see, the problem is if that is true, if, if it's just by consensus, right, that things are right and wrong, then people can agree to say, you know, okay, well, you know, we gotta control the population, so everybody's gotta kill one of their children. Pretty, pretty sad situation there, right? Um, if everybody agreed on that, then that would be moral on this view, but that seems like so immoral and so wrong. And it, it, true story, I actually knew a guy in college who held something like this. Um, he wasn't a Christian. Um, and he did it like in a speech and debate um, class, you know, those classes, everybody has to speak in front of everybody else and it's really awkward. Um, so this guy wasn't nervous at all, but uh, he should have been. Um, he was arguing that we should kill people in the population so we can less, lessen the human population. And he said this with a straight face. And let me just tell you, that speech, yeah, not well received. <laughs> At all. I, I always wanted to know what grade he got, but you know, you got that teacher-student privacy thing. Because goodness, golly, that was tough. Um, so if, yeah, if we're just animals, what one animal does to another animal is ethically irrelevant. The lion does not murder the zebra. He kills the zebra. Um, this is how non-Christian philosopher, he's an agnostic, he doesn't, he doesn't believe in the existence of God. He's not sure. Michael Roos puts it. And this is kind of describing this, this biological view. Morality is a biological adaptation, no less than our, our hands and feet and teeth, considered as a rationally justifiable set of claims about objective something. Ethics is illusory. It's not real. It's something we make up. I appreciate it that when someone says, love thy neighbor as thyself, they are thinking they are referring above and beyond themselves. Nevertheless, such reference is truly without foundation. Morality is just an aid to survival and reproduction and any deeper meaning is illusory. So on this view, morality is not discovered like scientific truths like mathematical truths, we discover those, right? Rather, on this view, morality is not discovered, it's made up. Um, but it does seem like we discover what's right or wrong, that we come to that truth and that conclusion by looking into our conscience and deciding and by reading the Bible and looking into what God has given us, the ability to know what's right or wrong. And we know these moral truths. They're so clear to us. I mean, I know it's wrong to hurt people and murder people just as clearly as I know that I'm not in a dream just dreaming, preaching the sermon. By the way, pastors, just a little fact, pastors do have dreams of preaching sermons. If you're ever curious, yeah, I mean, I've had dreams where I've had no notes and I'm preaching. Those are nightmares, by the way, not a dream. Um, but I know I'm not in one of those dreams right now. I'm, I'm, as, I'm as clear as that as I am that murdering people is just wrong. Um, the Bible says that God has made us as creatures to know right from wrong. Look at Romans 2, 14 through 15. It says, for within Gentiles and non-Jewish people who do not have the law, they don't have the Old Testament law, by nature do what the law requires. They are a law unto themselves, even though they, are not, they do not have the law. Um, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their consciences also bear witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So God made us to know adultery is wrong. He made us to know 
Murder is wrong. It's not the same thing as ice cream or preference that we make up. It's something we discover. Hurting and abusing women and children is absolutely wrong. It isn't just opinions. It is not something we have just made up. It is objectively and clearly evil. There is no argument a person could give me that convinced me otherwise. Just like if you were to try to argue that I'm in a dream, dream right now, there's no argument you can convince me that I'm in a dream right now. Um, the same is true for morality. And yet we know that sacrifice, forgiveness, loving your enemies is good and beautiful. It's not something we just made up and invented. It's truths we've discovered by reflecting on our consciences, on our nature. Um, even when we have trouble agreeing with those truths, like someone hurts us or wrongs us, it's hard to forgive someone who hurts you and wrongs you. We may not want to agree with what the Bible says in those cases, but we know it's the truth. We know we should do it. Now, um, how does the fact that objective moral truths get us to God? Well, I want you to think about this. The truth that murder is wrong, you can't see that. You can't heat that up in the microwave. You can't toss it across the room. It's not a physical thing. It's non-physical. It's immaterial. It's abstract in, in character. And so what we need is a non-physical God to ground those truths. Um, moral truths are information, right? The information, love your enemies. That's information. Information doesn't come from non-information. Information comes from an informer. Okay, so this is grounded in a personal informer, a good God that can ground these truths of morality, this information that's not physical that you can't see, a universal God that can bind us to these truths. And so this gets you an all good personal God who has the informer of that information of morality. Now, morality has another dimension that we all know. When we think about moral truths, we don't just think, okay, love your neighbor. We don't think, okay, that's just the truth. We feel obligated to follow such truths, right? To be kind to one another, to, to, to show forgiveness, grace, and mercy. We have a, in our sense, we have a great sense of obligation to follow those truths. And from this, we get a second moral argument. And this one's very interesting. Um, it's a bit longer, but I think it's, it's helpful. One, we have objective moral obligations and duties. We know that we shouldn't do bad things and we should do good things. If we have objective moral obligations and duties, they are best understood as divine commands. So objective moral obligations are best understood as divine commands. If objective moral obligations are best understood as divine commands, God exists. So God exists. Now, the reason why this has such a painstaking uh, kind of style here is it's just, it shows that it's valid logically. So if you accept one, two, and three, and four, then five follows necessarily. You can't avoid the argument. It falls logically and necessarily and inescapably. So that's why it's written in that way to know that it's very clear that God exists and his existence is logically inescapable. So the basic idea here is that we feel this obligation towards following certain laws. Where do laws come from? They come from like talking to a rock outside. You're going on a hike, you know, oh, the rock said I should do this, you know? No, laws come from law givers, right? And so moral laws are best explained as commands from a holy God. We are not obligated towards rocks and trees. We're obligated towards persons, and so we are obligated towards this personal God that can impose moral obligations on us as perfectly good and as the greatest possible being. Because only the greatest can impose these kind of moral rules on us. And this is uh, from philosopher uh, Richard Taylor. I like his last name. Um, 
but he didn't believe in God. But this is what he even says. This is what he admits. He says, to say that something is wrong because it's forbidden by God is perfectly understandable to anyone who believes in a law-giving God. But to say that something is wrong, even though no God exists to forbid it, is not understandable. Amen to that. I don't even know what that means, right? The concept of moral obligation is unintelligible apart from the idea of God. The words remain, but the meaning is gone. Now, um, we have talked a lot about morality here and um, being made up rather than discover. So that leads me to my next question. Is your purpose in life, is that something you just make up or is that something you discover? Is that a fact out there that you apprehend or discover? Or is that just something you make up and you impose on reality that's absurd and meaningless? Because, I mean, it really matters if there's a real purpose outside of you. It really matters. Um, is, is there something you are living for right now that's bigger and outside of you rather than just something you, you know, uh, basically make up or uh, pretend just to make yourself feel better? Something you've kind of concocted in your own mind. And here's the thing, if you have made up a purpose of your life, say, um, you know, working, loving your family, providing your fam for your family, then if, if purposes are just made up like that, so, you know, I really wanna just, you know, take care of my wife and my kids and love them and provide for them, that's my purpose. That's my meaning in life. And then someone can just make up another purpose and meaning in life, a purpose like, you know, I'm going to get to the top of the corporate chain and I'm going to make as much money as I possibly can. That is my purpose in life. So yeah, I mean, you can see if, if we discover these, the, the, the purpose in life or we make it up, it, it really matters because there's nothing wrong with just, if there's no purpose out there, there's nothing wrong with you just making up whatever you, you want. Someone can make up a purpose of, you know, um, having as much joy and pleasure and being as selfish as they want. And see, what the Bible teaches is that we have a greater purpose outside of us. Um, and we, we know this from which our common sense experience. We know intuitively that if someone lives a life of, you know, doing drugs, having a good time, playing video games all day long, that that is not a good purpose to have. I'm not saying all video games are bad. I'm just, you know, throwing them in the package there. So don't read into that, all right? <laughs> um, but yet a person, we know that if a person is sacrificing for others for a greater cause out of love and care, we know, that, we know that's a great purpose to have in life. We know deep down inside, if we're being honest and reflecting on what's going on inside, we know that there is a purpose greater than just our, ourselves and our immediate selfish desires. But you see, that can only be true if God exists, which gives us our third Proof here, our lives are objectively meaningful and purposeful. Two, our lives can be objectively meaningful and purposeful only if God exists, so God exists. Now, if someone does not believe in God, then all they believe is in the physical universe. We are animals on the third rock from the sun, nothing more, nothing less. And then we, according to what scientists say today, we and the whole earth are gonna, the whole universe actually is gonna be wiped out in the heat death of the universe in about a trillion years, in case you're wondering. Um, and so yeah, it's gonna be a cold, lifeless universe. Everything you have tried to work for and achieve for and strive for or not will be lost forever. 
And if everything you do in this life is completely wiped out, X'd out, then who really cares? Why does it even matter? Because nothing you do in this life lasts, has lasting significance, has lasting staying power, nothing. If you choose to spend your whole life lying, cheating, and murdering people you hate, then all of the consequences of the actions that you've chosen in this life will have the same result as somebody who has showed a life of kindness and love and mercy. It all ends to nothing. It all ends in a cold, lifeless universe. But you see, if you spend your whole life loving people, caring, um, like Mother Teresa, you show a lot of love and courage to people, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you do because it all has the same end. It's all for nothing. And um, this picture of reality um, is, is what it looks like on an atheist view. There's no God, there's no afterlife. There's no lasting thing that you do that impacts eternity. There's none of that. So I hate to say it, the classic Linkin Park song is true. In the end, it doesn't even matter. I tried so hard. You know that song. We all know that song. I listened to that in high school, like I think probably over 5,000 times until I was bored of it. Um, and you could tell it's still like burned on my brain, you know. It probably shows how old I am too. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, it doesn't matter how hard you try. I mean, they're right. In the end, it does not matter. It doesn't matter. And so if atheism is true, it doesn't matter. So nothing you have is lasting meaning. This is what um, the atheist Bertrand Russell said, um, and it's, he was honest about this. It's very dark and grim, but he's honest. This is what happens if one rejects the existence of God. That man is a product of causes which have no prevision of, of the end they are, were achieving, that his origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves, his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental, accidental collocations of atoms, that no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave. That all the labors of the ages, all devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of a solar system and that the whole temple of man's achievements must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of the universe in ruin. All these things, if not quite beyond dispute, are yet so nearly certain that no philosophy which rejects him can hope to stand. We'll see about that. Only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair. He said it, not me. It's despair. It's just hopeless. Can the soul's habitation hensely be safely built? I don't want to build anything on that. <laughs> That's like a, a failure pile in a sadness bowl right there. Goodness gracious. You see... Contrary to what Russell says here, it does seem like there is objective meaning and purpose beyond our lives, beyond having trying to have a good time. And that when we help someone, we forgive our enemies, when we care for others, when we, we, we serve past our immediate desires, our impulses, it seems like we're contributing something bigger than ourselves. And you see, that's only possible if a perfectly good God exists and forms a larger narrative for our life a story and a plan for our lives that impacts all of eternity. 
I mean, that's big. That, that gives us a meaning that we long for so desperately. It gives us a larger picture of God and ourselves and the world. And knowing God produces this great purpose. I'm doing things in my life, not just for myself and for my immediate survival impulses. I'm doing stuff for the greatest possible good, which is God himself, the greatest possible being and the center and locus of all love. I love how Paul says it, just kind of everything we do, everything you do, the smallest things you do in life, though they might seem sometimes meaningless uh, when we're eating or drinking, those have meaning if God has a plan for your life. As it says in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, so whether you eat or drink, the smallest things you do or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. And so when we come to know God, the infinite God of the universe, we, we find purpose in life and we don't feel unyielding despair and emptiness. But you see, when we reject God, when we denounce him, we don't believe in him, when we run from him, we kill him in our hearts, we don't want to have anything to do with him. We are actually hurting ourselves. We are actually killing ourselves. We're actually ruining ourselves and our own true happiness. I love the way that... Um, Philosopher and theologian um, William Lane Craig writes this. He says, um, man, writes Lauren Isley, is a cosmic orphan. He is the only creature in the universe who asks why. Other animals have instincts to guide them, but man has learned to ask questions like, who am I? Man asks, why am I here? Where am I going? Since the enlightenment, when he threw off the shackles of religion, man has tried to answer these questions without reference to God. But the answers came back were not exhilarating, but dark and terrible. You are the accidental byproduct of nature, a result of matter plus time plus chance. There is no reason for your existence. All you face is death. Modern man thought that when he had gotten rid of God, he had freed himself from all that repressed and stifled him. Instead, he discovered that in killing God, he had also killed himself. For if there is no God, then man's life becomes absurd. And what's amazing is that um, the existentialists who, were, who gave up on the existence of God said we had to make meaning for ourselves. And they said the most important philosophical, because they realized there was no meaning to life. This is what they said. The most important philosophical question you can ask yourself is why you shouldn't commit suicide. That's, that's how depressing and dark this gets when you reject the existence of God. Um, and it's sad that teen suicide is on the rise, um, but we need, we need to know that in our hearts, we know that we have purpose in God and Christ. There's something bigger out there for us and that God works all things out for those who love him. And so we, we try to cover this up. We try to bury this by menial tasks in our life. We try to work strive and achieve. We try to uh, you know, busy ourselves with tasks so that we try to cover up this deep gaping hole inside of us. We know that um, no matter what we do, there's, there's nothing that we really find rest in. There's always this, this um, antsy kind of emptiness inside of us. And so we try to distract ourselves from it. And there's this almost restlessness that, that happens, um, this emptiness. 
And we think that if we achieve the next level in life, if we get promoted or um, if we uh, come to the next level in our marriage or we finally get the amount of kids we want or the right house we get or the right car we get, we, we think, okay, finally, if I get these things, I'll finally be fulfilled. But you, you, you come to those points and you realize, I'm not fulfilled. I'm still the same old me. It's never enough. And I, I feel this restlessness, this emptiness inside of me. And so that leads us to our fourth and final argument for the existence of God called the argument from desire. You see, we desire something more than this world can offer us. And you see, nothing in this world, I mean, we think about it, there's nothing that fulfills us at all. And, I, and this is what C.S. Lewis wrote about this whole predicament here. He says, creatures are not born with desires unless uh, satisfaction for these desires exists. A baby feels Hunger, well, there's such a thing as, uh, as food. A duckling wants to swim. There's such a thing as water. And so if you have a desire for something, you find a fulfillment for that desire. If it's a natural desire that people share. If I find myself with a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Made for another world. This is how it goes. Every natural innate desire in us corresponds to some real object to satisfy that desire. But there exists in us a desire which no created thing, nothing in this world that you can put on the plate that can satisfy you. Therefore, there must exist something uncreated that can satisfy that desire. I, I really appreciate uh, this proof, this argument, because it's so honestly describes the way I felt before coming to Christ. Just, just confusion and pain and emptiness. And that's how I felt before coming to Christ. You see, there's just this empty painfulness that we all feel. It's, it feels uh, oftentimes, you know, when I was in the past, especially just kind of this empty, anxious feeling, this, this lost feeling of just restlessness and you see, only God can fulfill that, that with his unconditional, infinite love to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Only God can fulfill that. And so when you find God's love for you, this gives you meaning and purpose and fulfillment that nothing in your life, your job, your family, nothing else can give you. No matter what you try to fill your heart, it's just never enough. So no matter what you achieve, it never strips away. It never takes away that emptiness, that pain that we feel inside. Only the infinite God, the one who loves us, only he can take away that.